And as you are being seated, if you would please turn to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Gospel of Matthew will be in Matthew chapter 18 this morning. Taking a brief break from our journey through Luke, we have come very, very close to Christ's crucifixion and coming up on Holy Week, I decided we'll have a couple of weeks of uh, time where we can take a look at some other passages that we will be able to explore uh, the rest of Luke 23 in preparation for Holy Week and going through that. So I thought this would be a time to take a look at a often confused and little preached passage in Matthew chapter 18. This will be in verses 15 through 20, as I said. But I'm going to read the majority of chapter 18 so that we have the context of what it is that we are discussing. As you see in your bulletin, I have this is titled The Forgotten Command of Jesus. And I think that's because there's a lot of misunderstanding around this passage. And I hope that as we walk through it today, this will be something that we can see as a blessing that the Lord gives to the church. So I'm going to start in Matthew 18. I'm going to start in verse 1. Listen carefully, because this is the word of the Lord for you today. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is the will of my Father who is in heaven that that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. 
Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Before we jump into our examination of this important and challenging text, let's ask the Lord for his blessing on it today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we have before us this difficult text in your word. I ask that you would help us to understand it and that we would receive it and obey it from our hearts. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The Bible has a lot of things that are hard to hold together. A lot of concepts that seem mutually exclusive to one another. They are mysteries and tensions. For example, we know that God is in charge of everything and nothing happens in this world without his permission. But yet we are still responsible for the sin that we commit. And us and us alone will have to face the punishment For that sin, not God. Another mystery is that God himself is one God, but yet he presents himself in three persons. The mystery of the Trinity. A third tension, and one that we can actually see spelled out in this passage here, is that sin is a very, very serious thing. But yet forgiveness is absolutely critical and important and should be the posture of our hearts at all times. A lot of these tensions are hard for us to see how we can hold them both, but we need to, because the Scripture does. And while we don't have time to take a look at these other mysteries that I have helpfully just brought up and won't have time to untangle, I've done theological uh, classes on these that are available on our Facebook page to un- to loosen some of these tensions, but it's going to be this last tension that I want us to take a look at today. How can we see sin for being the seriousness that it is, but yet also see forgiveness as the requirement that it is? That tension is held here in this passage, specifically verses 15 through 20. This is the passage that spells out for us the process of church discipline. This is something that when we hear discipline, we immediately think punitive, punishment, something that mean people do to others that just need a little bit of help. But that's not what this passage is showing us today. And sometimes if we take a look at this passage, we look at it in isolation to the rest of the chapter. We see, if we are to take a look at these things briefly, we can see how this passage fits together. You remember as I read verses 5 through 9, how Jesus takes a look at temptation as something that is going to happen in our world. But oh, how awful it is for the one that brings someone to temptation to sin. And Jesus uses rather graphic language to illustrate how horrible this is. He mentions that instead of leading someone into sin, it would be better if you had a millstone tied around you and thrown into the sea. A millstone would have been a large two or three hundred pound stone would have been used to ground grains. It would be definitely something that would take you to the bottom of whatever body of water you were thrown into. 
He goes even further when he was saying if even our own hands or eyes lead us to sin, it would be better to cut those off than for us to sin. Now, Jesus is making a rhetorical point here. He's not calling for the literal mutilation of our flesh. Indeed, our sin comes from within. It's not our own hands or eyes or external things that corrupt us. It's our own corruption from, from within. But Jesus is trying to make a very vivid point to us to illustrate to us how serious sin is. It doesn't register to us normally because we have a sinful nature. We are prone to sin naturally. So we don't see it for the horror that it is. We've grown up in it and around it always, but he wants us to see that this is a really serious, terrible thing. So serious that the only way that it could be solved was the Son of God coming in flesh and dying to pay for our sins. It costs the death of Jesus Christ in order to rid us of our sin and to take away the penalty of it. This is very serious. But yet, we see the pursuit of forgiveness and the necessity of grace. As we move on to 10 through 14, we get God's perspective of the sinner. And what does he do with a sinner, one who has wandered away from the truth? We might think, having just read this other passage, it's like, all right, get out the millstones and the sharp knives. Here we go. But what does the father do? He pursues after the sheep that is lost, leaves the 99 there to go after the one, to pursue after the sinner and to bring them back to himself. Wouldn't you want to be a part of that work? Would you like to go after lost sheep and compel them to return to Christ from whom they've wandered? I know I would like to be a part of that work, but how do you do that? How do you go about rescuing somebody from sin? Well, here's verses 15 through 20. The Lord lays out for us exactly how we are to pursue this sinner. It's very simple. It's three steps. It's very simple for us to grasp, yet it's by no means easy to do. And Jesus does not leave us with false hope that this works every single time. Jesus is very realistic with how the world works. That if you come and confront someone with their sin, it doesn't work like the movies, especially the Christian ones, where people suddenly fall onto their knees, discover their sin, and repent upon first confrontation. Jesus lives in the real world. And, he, and we see that in how this passage is listed out. And we can see how this works. This is a necessary portion of Scripture. As commentators pointed out, Jesus would not have given us this instruction if he didn't think we would need it. And if we ignore it, we ignore it to our own peril. Calvin had illustrated that even a small family does not work without discipline. And so it is necessary for any gathering of people for this to take place. This is the process that protects everything else in the church our doctrine, and our people. Without a means of correction, there is no means of protection for everything else that we have in our church. 
So, with this lengthy introduction, <laughs> I bring to you our two points that we're going to look at today. You can see them in your outline on the back of the prayer guide tucked into your bulletin. <clears throat> we have two points we want to take a look at today. The first is that sin is so dangerous, it must be confronted by the church. Sin is so dangerous, it must be confronted by the church. And secondly, because grace is so amazing, repentance must be met with forgiveness by the church. Two things we're holding here. Seriousness of sin, requirement of forgiveness. Let's see how they fit together in this passage. There, we'll take a look at the first again. Sin is so dangerous it must be confronted by the church. There is, this has actually happened a couple of different times, but there is one recently a story of a news broadcaster who was giving the nightly news, and a viewer noticed that there was a lump at the base of her throat. And she sent an email to her and very tersely had said, your lump looks exactly like the one that I had. Mine turned out to be thyroid cancer. You should go get yours checked out. She was shaken by this, that someone from hundreds of miles from the studio would notice, but she went got it looked at, and indeed, it turned out to be thyroid cancer. It was able to get it taken care of and removed. Someone was able to see there was something wrong because they had personal experience with that and had confronted them on it and had a, probably a rather uncomfortable opportunity to confront somebody about their health and brought them away from this cancer. Well, here in this passage, we see a very similar approach of warning. But instead of a physical health, this is a warning about spiritual health. Sin, believe it or not, is much more disastrous than cancer. Cancer is able to kill our bodies, but sin is able to destroy our souls. Our souls are lasting for all of eternity, one in heaven or in hell. These are things we have to take seriously. So this is what Jesus addresses to us in verse 15. We're told what to do if someone sins against us. Look here. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, some versions of the English translation have against you. Others don't. Uh, I, I think if you are aware of someone sinning, it is most likely because someone has sinned against you. So this is however you are aware of it, whether this has been done in front of you or whether this has been done to you. If you are aware of something serious that needs to be confronted, this is what you do. And notice how this process is to be done. Jesus is very careful with how this is dealt with. Our inclination is to do one of two things. Either involve as many people as possible at this stage because we have been hurt in some way. Or two, we don't deal with it at all. Try to push it off to the side and pretend like it didn't happen. Neither of these approaches is proper, according to the scripture. Jesus tells us that if we have been sinned against or we see someone sin, our job is to go and confront. This is in a, in, for those of you that remember your English classes, this is in the imperative. It's a command to go and tell and confront this person's sin between you and him alone. This is not involving other people in gossip or sharing of confidential prayer requests. This is to be done between you and him alone. 
And this is a challenge. Because as one commentator pointed out, this is the responsibility of everybody. This isn't, say, if you see someone sin, go grab your pastor and have him confront him. It's like if you see someone sin, you are to go and confront him between you and him alone. And then Jesus gives us what to do if he responds. We say if he responds and repents and turns, then he says, you've gained your brother. Process is done. The goal has been achieved. Bring someone back and away from their sin. Now, are there, are there some exceptions to this? Yes, there will be times if, we, if, we, if you're being abused physically or otherwise, that there will be occasions to bring in authorities and work at this first stage or needing to bring others with you for your own safety. There are exceptions to that. It requires wisdom for that. But in general, it's to confront between you and him alone and then see what the Lord does with it. We may find, as it, he has here in verse 15, person repents, turns from their sin, leaves it behind, and rejoins you with Christ. And this is a wonderful thing. But life won't, work, won't always be, work so cleanly like that. Sometimes it takes more. We come to Jesus and say, it's like, well, yeah, but what if he doesn't listen to me? Well, we have verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is another wonderful safeguard that the Lord has brought into this process. The first step keeps it from being gossip. The second prevents it from being chasing after every sin that someone thinks might be there. You say there might be occasion where the person who is doing the confronting is wrong. And here's where the two or three witnesses can help speak into that. Bringing wise and mature believers into this process is helpful in determining whether we have the situation right. And if it is right, then this brings a sense of seriousness to the person who is being confronted. Let's just say, wow, it's not just this person who sees it as sin. These other people see that it is sin too. And these other people care enough to warn me about it. It is really a next level of love. For those of you that have raised children and understand what it means to have to discipline them, it's a difficult thing to do. No one wants to do that. But it's because we love our children that we are willing to do that and willing to confront the things that need to be confronted. And that's what we see here in verse 16. The rest of the community is getting together. That's why it's important to build this fellowship with one another. It's important to have these relationships pulled together because we need to be able to guide people. We need to be able to help bear one another's burdens along this way as we go about this. Sin is serious and it needs to be dealt with. But what happens when even the two or three witnesses are not enough? When they've been confronted Individually, they've been confronted by a group, but they still refuse to repent of their sin. This is getting very serious. This person has a very serious spiritual illness. It needs to be diagnosed. It needs to be dealt with. As we get to verse 17, it says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
The whole community gets involved at that point. It's a difficult step, but it's a necessary one. Because again, we see how serious sin is. This can bring about eternal death. We want to rescue people from that fate. And it should be obvious at this point that this is not pursuing every single thing that one could possibly find. These are serious sins that people are captured by. This also isn't something where someone is struggling in an area and they're showing repentance. It's not what this is for. It only gets to this point when there has been refusal after refusal after refusal after refusal. And that's when it gets to verse 17. That if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Gentiles and tax collectors were seen as very, very low members of society, especially from a Jewish audience to whom Jesus is speaking and to whom Matthew is writing. These were folks that were considered outside the covenant people of God, people who were not members of the Lord's family because they were living in constant sin. And that is what Jesus tells to us here. If we have someone who over a long period of time, this is not a one step, one step, one step, one confrontation, three conversations and you're out sort of thing. But this is someone who has refused again and again and again and again to repent of their sin, to demonstrate any acknowledgement that what they've done is wrong and to turn from that to Jesus. Only when it gets to that point does the community turn to this person and say, you are behaving in such a way that is not compatible with a Christian. We are so concerned about your life that we are going to have to say we don't think that you are a Christian. Is this the church being able, does this mean that the church has the power to cast people into hell? No. Does this mean that we can peer into someone's heart and know for sure where they are with Jesus? No, we can't look into the heart but we can look at the fruit of their lives. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about that we will be known by our fruit. Just planted some fruit trees in my yard. And I've got some rootstock trees, and I was told that if I bury them too deeply, I might get a different version of the tree than what I purchased. I've gotten dwarf plants, but if I plant them too deeply, the giant form of that may take root and may shoot to 20 or 30 feet if I'm not careful. Well, how do I know if I've done it correctly? I will see what the tree looks like. And I'll see what fruit it produces. If I ever got confused as to which tree I planted where, I'll know that my peach trees are here because I've got peaches. And I'll know my apple trees are over here because I've got apples. And I've got a fig tree over here because I've got figs. The same way with us as believers. Christians are going to have the fruit of the Spirit, as we talked about in our Sunday school class earlier today. And if we see none of that fruit present, then we have to determine there's something wrong with the root. Does that mean that because they're not Christians now that they will never be Christians? No. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of God able to change people's hearts. But if we see no fruit, we do them no favors to lie. 
if we have serious concerns like that lady did with the thyroid cancer, it does someone no favors to pretend like nothing is wrong. So what does it look like then? Does telling someone that they are not a Christian, does that look like the shunning that we see in some subcultures in our country? Where anytime you see them in public, you just put up your hand and walk away or you don't talk to them or anything like that. I don't think that's what this is calling for. Because Jesus ministered to tax collectors and Gentiles all the time. But what I think this does mean is that we don't pretend like nothing's happened. We're concerned about their soul. And we want to pursue them with the gospel so that they can understand that they have a Savior. Who can win them back even from their wanderings. And is willing to take them back. This isn't something that is done flippantly or quickly. This is a very solemn, difficult thing to do. In the Presbyterian church, that would look like there would be a confrontation with the elders as representatives of the church. And it's very difficult to know when and how this process needs to be done. So I hope you all are praying for your elders, praying for your pastor. As we work through these things together and as we watch over people's souls and in in concern for them. Now, I can imagine as we work through this process, we could ask who gives you the right to say that? How are you able to know that what you're doing is correct? Verses 18 and following. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Normally, I am a very big fan of how the ESV translates things, except here. Now, to their credit, they put a little two there and they have an alternate translation there, or excuse me, a little, uh, it's a little seven in the ESV. And I think this is the correct way to say it. That whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound. It's kind of awkward. For those those really advanced English students, if you remember, this is called the future perfect. It's tough. little English lesson here. What this means is there's something that has happened in the past but has continuing implications for the future. Something's been happening here, but it still has effects here. We see this most often whenever Jesus says, it has been written, meaning it's been written back here, but it still means something today. Or when Jesus was on the cross and he says, it is finished. We could translate it today, it has been finished. Something that's happened here has present implications for us now. Jesus has paid the price for our sin, and that has continuing effects for us even today and beyond. Why do I stress this? Because when we are going through this process of church discipline, when we have been patiently again and again been working with someone to bring them to a reality to their sin and they still don't see it, still persist in it, and then we tell them, look, according to what we read in the scriptures, this is wrong. You are outside of this and off of the authority we already have in the scriptures. This is what we can tell you about your life. We're not binding people. The word here is refers to objects. 
This is something about their actions that they've done. Telling them that this is incorrect. And all we're doing is following what's already been determined in heaven. What has been bound and what has been loosed. Our authority is a derived authority. Our authority does not come from ourselves. We don't get to stand here and separate out based on our own evaluations of people. Based on our own evaluations of personality or whether or not we get along with this person. It's based out of the scriptures. The sin that we are confronting them with is a sin that has been defined as such from the scriptures. Not an annoying personality quirk that we would like to get rid of. No one gets disciplined over being annoying or talkative or something. But it's as sins as scripture defines them. And only within those bounds can we say that. And it's only within this that we do this. It's also worth noting, again, as I probably should have said at the beginning, this is for sins within the church. It's not a process that we do to other people from outside. This is us dealing with our own community, our own family. Do we work through? But then you may say, it's like, well, this, even still, Jesus ran, emphasizes to us again in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This again, emphasizing these that have been confronting of this sin and are asking for this help. It will be given to them to continue in this process. But if this sounds like a weighty and scary thing to do, good. It is. It is a weighty, solemn thing for us to do. Even when we're working with a derived authority, even when we're working from a text confronting sin as the Bible has defined it. But the Lord offers us one additional comfort. And that's here in verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. While it is certainly true that God is with us at all times and is with us even at poorly attended prayer meetings, that's not what this verse is about. This is a particular promise to those that are working through this very solemn, weighty process of confronting sin. Christ promises to be with you in that and to guide you in that. should emphasize to us who we're relying on. How much this needs to be spent in prayer. How much of this needs to be spent in dependence on Jesus for this. Instead of our own wisdom. Instead of our own thoughts. That's what this is. It's a solemn responsibility. That's why Jesus promises to be with us. Even if it's only two or three that are willing to stand. And he's willing to do this because there is a special promise for those gathered to reclaim this brother. And he wouldn't phrase it this way if that wasn't indeed possible. That's why we get to our second point. Because grace is so amazing, repentance must be met with forgiveness by the church. This process from beginning to end is about 
helping people see their sins so that they can be forgiven. This is not getting out our scope and seeing how many sinners we can cut down. This is not about running around with our switch, whacking everybody that we can see with anything that we might find. This isn't supposed to be a punishment, but it's supposed to be a shaking of the shirt collar saying, wake up, you're in danger. We want to rescue you. The fireman doesn't have a conversation with the person who's sitting in a burning building. Wants to take everything he can to rescue them from that process, and that's what we do. And when the person does repent, we forgive, and we work towards restoration. Sometimes, depending on the sin, that might be a process. It might take a while. But that is always the aim, is forgiveness. And that's why the very next thing, when Peter says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Peter thought he was being generous by giving seven chances. Jesus holds the standard so much higher than that. And he says, it's 70 times seven. Aren't you glad Jesus is generous with sinners? I am. This is always the point. We only keep ratcheting up the response to someone's refusal because we want to have them see their sin. We want to have them forgiven. And at any point that they repent, the ratcheting stops. We don't keep raking someone over the coals for those that have been repentant. Repentance is the goal. Jesus continues to reach out, as I said earlier, to the Gentiles and the tax collectors. And we do the same. Even those that have been disciplined by the church, we continue to reach out to them to win them to the gospel. Because that's our goal. It's not about trying to find our holy huddle and push everybody out who doesn't meet our standard. It's about trying to bring in as many as we can so that they can see the forgiveness of Christ. While not letting go of the seriousness of sin. Well, being honest with people about what the real condition of their life is. And it's worth knowing that as we go about this process, and oh, that we had time to look into these passages even more deeply, but it is soaked, the Bible, in how we approach this with gentleness. I'm going to point out a couple of them to you. The first is in 2 Thessalonians 3.15 where Paul is also talking in the context of discipline. In 2 Thessalonians 3.15. I'll start in verse 13. As few brothers do not grow weary in well-doing, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. But look at verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. As John Calvin had put it, unless this gentleness is maintained in all steps of this discipline process, there is danger lest we soon slide down from discipline to butchery. It's not what we're trying to do. Trying to win our brother. Or we see in Galatians 6.2, another one of Paul's letters, where he talks about how we go about this process of working with someone else's sin within our church. In Galatians chapter 6, 
Verses 1 and 2, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Finally, in James chapter 5, very end of the letter. James chapter 5, verse 19 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The Lord wouldn't give us a promise like that if it wasn't possible. Doesn't mean it will always happen immediately. I knew of one church that practiced this upon a man who had committed adultery and done all these terrible things. And and it took 15 years. But the man came back around. Came back to the gospel. And the church restored him to fellowship and communion. That's a beautiful thing. It's a harsh step, seemingly, to take. But it's eternity that's at stake, folks. That's why this is a process that needs to be done. It's a forgotten command, but it is a command. When someone is put outside of the church, when someone is rendered to be a non-Christian, we call that process excommunication. The reason why we call it excommunication is because they're not to come to the table of the Lord. The Lord's table is for those who are in Christ. And if someone is living a completely unrepentant life, we do wrong to invite them to this table. In 1 Corinthians 11, we find out that people have become sick or even died from taking this table unworthily. Not means that they're perfect, but because they don't have a relationship with Christ. That's also why, even though I don't emphasize it every time, that's why we will talk about Members in good standing of a church. Because we are hoping that people who have been members of churches are being watched over carefully. And that if that person has been put out of a church and say, you are under discipline, we are not going to invite them here. Not because we don't like them, not because we don't want them. We want them to be here and a part of our service. But we don't want to bring them to the table because we want them to see their sin. So that they may be converted. So that they might be changed. It's not trying to be mean. It's not trying to be exclusionary. It's not our point. It's trying to be honest. It's be obedient to what Scripture has called to. And I understand this is something that is difficult. It seems strange to talk about. But this really is a beautiful thing. This passage depends on a community that loves one another enough to tell the truth. Loves one another enough to get involved in people's lives, and that's hard. It's a lot easier to just sit back and watch television than deal with someone else's sin. It's a lot easier to just say, the pastor will handle it. I can't. This is something we're all involved with and together. We're all involved in the process, again, not of chasing around our brothers and sisters with an axe, but going after a lost sheep with our staff, trying to guide them 
back into the fold of Christ because that's where blessing is. We love our brothers and sisters enough to want them to be in that sphere of blessing with God. And we'll pursue them however far that takes because Christ did that for us. He could have just sat back on his throne in heaven with all the angels worshiping and said, let these people go to hell with them, he could have said. But he didn't. He came and pursued each one of us. He's pursued after our own hearts. We didn't deserve it. He got involved. So there's no way we could look at them and say, not worth my time. I'm okay to hell with my brother. We don't want to say that. We want to say, I love my brother. I've loved my sister. I'm going to make sure they know Christ. Because that is the most important thing. Everything else pales in comparison to knowing Jesus. He's that good. So I pray if there's anyone here who does not know Christ, that you would repent and turn to him today. Or if you're saying, well, maybe I'm the wandering brother. This is your opportunity to turn. Come back to Christ. He's going to take you back. Jesus is not some sort of cross-armed father. He's like what we see in the prodigal son. The father who runs out to embrace his son who was lost. That's who our God is. We want to win them back to that father. And I pray that that's been the case for us today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this time as we've looked at this very challenging text. This is something that's not easy for us to think about. But I pray that you would help us to see the beauty. You would help us to see what love looks like. And I pray that you would see that found in us today. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.